0: This is guns and butter.
1: Something happening, yeah. yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. That card, um, which was a prayer list that um, that Hoover had was carried by Tolson and given to uh, the Dixie Mafia leader whom he and Hoover obviously had worked over many years and in particular worked uh, on this assassination. Um, it had the, uh, the names of John Kennedy on it. It was a prayer list. And it had the names of John Kennedy, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., and Robert Kennedy. And uh, they were uh, three people whose deaths were being prayed for.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today's show, The Plot to Kill King, an interview with Dr. William Pepper, 39 years into the investigation. William Pepper is an attorney, an author, and a poet. He is the author of three books on the assassination of Martin Luther King, Orders to Kill, An Act of State, and his third and latest book, The Plot to Kill King, the truth behind the assassination of Martin Luther King, Jr., which includes shocking new revelations. Today, we discuss Dr. King's legacy and all that was lost with his assassination, the war in Vietnam, the control of major media, and disturbing revelations by new witnesses about the conspiracy to end Dr. King's life. Dr. William Pepper, welcome.
1: Thank you, Bonnie. It's good to be with you.
0: You have just published your third and final book on Dr. King, The Plot to Kill King, The Truth Behind the Assassination of Martin Luther King. Your book is beautifully written. You've been able to convey the magnitude of the tragedy on many different levels. You write in your introduction that the evidence presented will once and for all uncover the crucial role of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, is Deputy Clyde Tolson, the ultimate assassins, the medical officials at St. Joseph's Hospital, and finally, the identification of the shooter, including my interview with the primary assassin of Martin Luther King Jr. You also write that, far from being elated that the truth is now with us face-to-face, I feel consumed by a sadness that will be a lifelong emotional presence. Could you talk about that sadness and all that was lost with the murder of Dr. King?
1: Yes, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a twofold um, reaction. Um, what was lost, of course, primarily was the, uh, the, the humane and uh, progressive uh leadership and growth in that leadership of uh, Martin Luther King that went with him to the grave and uh that denied the republic of uh the wisdom and insights and um, strong compulsion for uh humanity and the uh the suffering of the wretched of the earth um, when Martin King uh, was taken from us that uh, was also denied to us and to future generations and I think we see so much um, of that loss today uh, not just in the United States but throughout the world in the absence of that that kind uh, that kind of leadership so at at one level the the loss itself uh, has to uh, render one uh, very sad and uh, and 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 depressed that uh, this could happen. Um, uh, the historical relevance of Martin King's death has sort of compelled me to look back in history, and and be confronted with an awareness of the use of political assassinations throughout history, um, which I think we often overlook when we we focus on a particular context of, a, of, a, of an assassination. We have not really grasped the fact that throughout history, and I'm going back to the, from the dawn of human society and, and the development of uh, civilization, um, we've not grasped the fact that often major historical uh, events and times have been changed through the use of political assassination by uh, ruling forces in a society. And uh, I've been confronted with that, and uh, that aspect of the human condition uh, is, uh, <laughs> is sadness upon sadness because of the immediate loss of, in, in our lifetime of, uh, of Martin King. Uh, the second, the, the second uh, level of sadness has to do with um, just the whole dynamics of this particular assassination. And how it was carried out, and who was involved in it, and um, the whole struct whole structure of values that uh, uh, existed at the time and still exists today, in the utilization of violence, not just by public figures who have betrayed their trust, but by professionals, and and uh, I mean trained medical professionals who had uh, a sworn separate set of oaths in terms of uh, the obligation to human life and well-being. So it's a it's a twofold uh, reservoir of uh, of sadness, if you will.
0: Included in the appendices of the plot to kill King is your article, "The Children of Vietnam," published by Ramparts Magazine that catalogued the devastating effects of napalm and white phosphorus bombing that had been unleashed on the young and old in Vietnam. Since your involvement with Dr. King came about because of this article, could you talk about how the war affected Dr. King and yourself? How long were you in Vietnam as a reporter?
1: I was I was in Vietnam in uh, in, in the spring of 1966. Um, my visit was cut short to uh, six weeks because of uh, an injury suffered in um, in a, a plane uh, a mishap and uh, forced landing um, that uh, caused a uh, injury to my back. From which I, I suffer, I must say, even today. Um, but during that period of time that I was there, I, I spent it mostly out in the country, away from uh, Saigon and the Pentagon briefings, um, the Arvin briefings, as they were, and uh, so I was in shelters and camps and. Um, uh, hospitals and schools and places where the where the people lived, and so, in the villages, and I had the opportunity to photograph and to uh, and to chronicle uh, the the devastation of uh, heavy uh, armaments and uh, really uh, criminal assaults on on an on an ancient and uh, civilian people. Those were the, those were of course the the, the major. Uh, the major victims um, being confronted with uh, with those war crimes and that's what they what they uh, were being confronted with that type of war criminality um, uh, really for the first time although one in the civil rights movement and elsewhere had come across uh, activity that was uh, heinous and, and and racist and damaging destructive um but nothing nothing like that in terms of uh the de- the degree of of uh, of terror and human damage that i saw having having been confronted with that for the first time and and then not developing any photographs or writing uh anything until i returned to the us uh i had to then um uh, relive it, if you will, when I went through the preparation of that ramparts of that ramparts piece um, it It moved uh, Dr. King enormously he had no idea of the degree of horror that we were uh, as the most powerful nation on earth were visiting upon this this ancient civilization and its and its people. He wept at one point when he uh, went through some of my files and saw saw some of the uh, the brutality. A good portion of which was also reported in the in the article, um, because most of the civilians were either children or very old people, and uh, children being the dominant victims. To the extent that we eventually formed a committee of responsibility and brought over to the United States about one hundred. War injured children for recuperative uh, and therapeutic treatment here uh, in the states across the country, and then of course returning them to Vietnam after all that was could be done for them was uh, was completed martin king was um, was devastated by this, and as a result um, we met for the first time in early very early nineteen. 19- 67, uh, and, and the piece came out in January of 67. We met, uh, I guess it was February, or so in 67. He then decided uh, to, to go forward and frontally um, oppose the war, which he did on April 4, as you know, April 4, 1967, a year to the to the day to his death, with his speech at Riverside Church. Uh, and he was determined to use whatever means he could to oppose that war, and uh, asked me to work with him and uh, to do what uh, what I could do in terms of the formation of the National Conference for New Politics and its attempts to do a political uh, opposition to the Johnson administration. And I agreed to be its the executive director um, for that purpose.
0: Now, the consolidation and control of, of major media was already in place in the 60s, wasn't it?
1: It, it was, but it wasn't uh, consolidated to the point that it is, <laughs> if I may say so, that it is today. And, um, uh, and you, had, you had exceptions, you had individuals, and and you had opportunities to get on uh, uh, programs from time to time. I remember that uh, um, Dr. Spock, Ben Spock, and I uh, went on the uh, went on the Today Show uh, with Barbara Walters and Hugh Downs. Now that would be uh, perhaps unheard of uh, today. Um, but we, we we did that i remember that um, bill atwood and i recount this experience in the book because i think it's so significant bill atwood of course was the editor uh managing editor of look magazine and he wanted to publish my uh my ramparts piece in look uh to give it nationwide exposure and to give the uh, uh the war and the conduct of the war, um, nationwide exposure. And um, I remember going into Bill Atwood's office at Look and uh, him coming across the room and extending his hands and a grin on his face saying, you'll be pleased to know uh, that I had a visitor last week. Or maybe not so pleased, but anyway, I had this visitor (laughs) last week. And... um, I said, and who would that be then?" And he said, uh, uh, Averill Harriman flew in from Washington to see me." I said, "Oh, and what did Governor Harriman want?" And he said, "Well, he brought me greetings from the President of the United States, and a, he said the President had a favor to ask of me." And I uh, said, what, "What was that?" And he said, "Well, the favor was that I would never publish anything that Bill Pepper wrote." And he said, now, what do you think of that? You're not even 30 years old, and the President of the United States is worried about my publishing something that you have written. Um, and I said, I'm more interested in what you said to, Go- to Governor Harriman. And he, uh, <laughs> he chuckled and he said, well, I told him we we're going to see you next week, and if we believed what you said, and we, and, and we were impressed with your documentation and photographs and, and backup, uh, we, we were going to publish. Oh, and by the way... Um, give the president my best regards. Now, that was Bill Atwood, and he was a rare, rare uh, person then, and, um, of of course, virtually impossible to imagine uh, someone like him in that position today. The problem was, I'll just give you a quick ad ad, of the quip, the problem was the next week he had uh, Jim Garrison come up from New Orleans, and the same man who brought me in, Chandler Broussard, the Associate or deputy editor brought in Garrison, and where uh, he might have spent about five hours or so with me. I think he must have spent six, seven with Garrison, and he called Bob Kennedy that night at one o'clock in the morning, and uh, he said to uh, he said to Bobby uh, Kennedy, "I've just uh, had this long session with uh, New Orleans District Attorney Garrison. And he's convinced me." that the CIA killed your brother and uh, I'm shaken uh, w- with, with this evidence and this information and uh, Bob apparently said to him, we know that but I've got to get the White House uh, in order to reopen that whole investigation well, that phone call took place around 1am at 4am uh, Bill Atwood had a heart attack and he left uh, Look magazine, and uh, was never to return, and, uh, except as an occasional roving editor. Um, but he was finished. Brissard was fired, uh, and of course neither my piece or that of uh, uh, Jim Garrison w- was ever ever published in in, uh, in Look. Um, I, I I don't mean to imply anything sinister about the. The heart attack. I have no evidence or information about that at all. But um, uh, it was obviously a very stressful uh, encounter that uh, that, uh, Bill Atwood had. And uh, I did speak with his widow some years later, in the course of my work. And uh, she said to me, Bill, um, please don't, don't. involve me or try to uh, get me involved with what you're doing Bill respected you and your work and um, but I have children to raise in this country and I, I've respected that wish uh, ever since
0: Wow what a story you do have to kind of wonder about that heart attack my God mm.
1: yeah well you wonder about a lot of things you don't you're not sure you know I mean and and, and also years later, um, when we did the the did uh, the television trial, I guess it was uh, Brian Gumble w- went on a limb that most people would not go out, and uh, he uh, asked me to stay for a second session on the Today Show, um, and that was very unusual. And uh, he very hostile in the first session, and the second he seemed to take the answers on board and um, was much more of a, of a compatible uh, interviewer. Um, he, of course, was then given a, uh, uh, a, a, an offer I guess he couldn't refuse by CBS, left the Today Show, and eventually, of course, left CBS and uh, has been out of mainstream news media ever since. So one doesn't really know uh, uh, the answers and what underlies a lot of these events and changes, but... Uh, it's worrying, and uh, it's, it's very worrying. I know when uh, Dexter King and I were asked to go on Larry King at one point, because the King family, um, of course, supported my work, and I represented them in a civil trial, which uh, the country doesn't even know about. <laughs> 70 witnesses, 30 days, and in, in a court of law in Memphis, Tennessee, which laid out at that point in time in 1999, all that we knew, uh, all the evidence we had about the assassination. Um, and Larry um, apologized to me before the program started and said, I'm sorry, I've just been, uh, I had been I've been ordered to, uh, uh, to add a third, um, uh, third guest to the list. And uh, so therefore, uh, Reverend Jackson will be sitting in with us uh, on, on this interview tonight, and um, <laughs> oh. uh, I thought that was interesting actually
0: oh well that's interesting, so was this interview broadcast?
1: Yes, that one it was broadcast, and uh, Jesse uh, did what he could do to temper um, what we were learning and what we knew and uh to um sort of leave the door open that James O. Ray uh, probably did have some involvement, but even if he wasn't the shooter, and uh, you know, it, it, it clouded some of the uh, the issues.
0: I'm speaking with attorney and author Dr. William Pepper. Today's show, The Plot to Kill King, an interview with Dr. William Pepper, 39 years into the investigation. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What was J. Edgar Hoover and Clyde Tolson's prayer list?
1: Fascinating uh, card that um, I include in the appendix to the book because it was given to me by the son um, of the Dixie Mafia um, leader, really, who, whose family carried out so much of the action activity on the ground and in addition to a very lengthy deposition, which is included in its entirety. Uh, by the way, Bonnie, I want to make it clear that though I've excerpted from depositions that were filmed and sworn to and taken under oath, well I, I've I've used excerpts uh, from them to make uh, points and to recite the history, I have included the most significant depots uh, in their entirety, so I could not be accused of taking things out of context. I wanted uh, readers and researchers to be able to have access to the entire depositions. That card, um, which was a prayer list that um, that Hoover had, was carried by Tolson and given to uh, the Dixie Mafia leader, whom he and Hoover obviously had worked over many years, and in particular worked uh, on this assassination. Um, it had the uh, the names of John Kennedy on it. It was a prayer list, and it had the names of John Kennedy, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., and Robert Kennedy. And uh, they were uh, three people whose deaths were being prayed for.
0: Did the prayer list actually say that they were praying for their deaths?
1: Didn't say that, but that's what I was advised was uh, Tolson told uh, Told the uh, the old man Russell Adkins that uh, uh, this was uh, this was the list. This was their prayer list for the uh, for the the deaths of these these three people who were unacceptable.
0: You write that quote: the stories of several key witnesses, silent for decades, are revealed for the first time. What are a few of the stories of these key witnesses, and who are they? Let's begin with the Adkins family, starting with the father, Russell Adkins. Who was he?
1: Well, Russell Adkins um, was um, a well-known, we call him Dixie Mafia leader. He, He actually had a sort of a nondescript uh a job working for the memphis public works department would you believe but uh and that that was that was what he did in terms of uh, uh his front or getting getting money in but um he he also operated every conceivable kind of uh illegal business which involved um corrupting police uh, and uh, getting involved in politics. Virtually no one would run for, for mayor without um, uh, the Adkins group's uh, serious support. They were involved in a lot of local assassinations. He had a uh, uh, local hitman who, whose family, he bought a house. They all lived in the same general area and they had a good working relationship so we we believe with carlos marcello who used to come up and was was present at uh, at many of the meetings and uh, and that of course w- was the the big mafia marcello ran uh, that whole area and um, the the dixie mafia were the were these local guys the local types they're all masons and all members of the clan um, and in fact, um, Russell Adkins' son, Ron Tyler Adkins, uh, told me that he was taken to his first lynching at the age of six. Um, so they they were they were Klansmen. They were they were uh, Masons, and uh, they had a good working relationship. Uh, developed a good working relationship with Hoover, and uh, and his FBI office, and uh, the the main contact and liaison. Uh, was Clyde Tolson. Tolson, who was Hoover's number two and Hoover's lover, um, would, of course, c- would come regularly into, uh, into Memphis and uh, and meet with the uh, Adkins family. Um, and Tolson was the main, uh, um, uh, main conduit of information and instructions um, for the assassination of activity against Martin King. He went on a couple of transatlantic trips with uh, Atkins, with old man Atkins, where they could spend time together and they could discuss details away from any prying eyes or listening ears. So uh, they, were very, they, they were very close. They, they, they worked very closely together. And when Russell Atkins died in 67, died in July of 67, a year before uh, the assassination, his son Russell jr. Uh, ostensibly took over but as as we got into it more and more, it became pretty clear that Frank Holloman who was uh, formerly worked in hoover's office in washington and and who was the director of police and fire in Memphis uh, during that uh, that last year of uh, king's life that it was Frank Holloman who pretty much ran things on the ground and worked with uh, Dixie Mafia as well as uh, uh, a couple of um, uh, Marcello's lieutenants, particularly one, Frank Liberto, who ran a, a warehouse operation in Memphis, but who was um, one of Marcello's key lieutenants in the Mafia uh, operations in, uh, in Memphis. So that was um, that, that. That was who the um, who the Adkins family was, and it was Russell Adkins, accompanied by our one of our main witnesses, his son, Ron Tyler, who at the time was about 15. Uh, Adkins with Tyler carried twenty-five thousand dollars that Tolson brought in for the purpose uh, to the warden of the Missouri State Penitentiary. Uh, to organize the escape of James Earl Ray. They had profiled James Earl Ray as, uh, as, a, as an inmate, as a con, who could be uh, used as the patsy in the killing. And once he had been profiled and chosen, then uh, the money was sent and his uh, escape was arranged uh, with a meeting that took place in November, late November December of 1966. Uh, six. And James escaped on April 23rd, 1967. Poor James never knew, of course, that he, <laughs> that he was uh, being, being, uh, being set up to be used this way, but he was certainly very willing to uh, uh, take advantage of an opportunity to escape, which he did.
0: What did you learn from Russell Adkins' son, Ron Tyler Adkins?
1: Um, a great deal. A great deal about the planning for the assassination, how they uh, set things up, um, the commitment to, uh, to get Martin King, the uh, involvement of Tolson, which was a major uh, surprise to me, actually, the degree of involvement of Clyde Tolson, who would be coming in continually and, um, and meeting with the family and even traveling with the old man. So, um, we learned a good deal. I mean, he was down on Mulberry Street, where the motel is located, on a on a motor scooter bike um, at the time of the assassination. He saw Earl Clark, who was the spotter for the shooter, um, in my view, come down over the wall right after the shot, run up Mulberry and get into a uh, waiting police car to be driven away, and... Um, and that was corroborated by a taxi driver who saw the same and who told it to another taxi driver. That taxi driver who actually saw it uh, was killed that night by uh, Russ Adkins' um, hitman because he, he saw Clark coming down. The, Clark was a lieutenant in the police force. Clark was afraid that he, he, would, be, uh, he would be recognized. So young Adkins w- walked us through... Um, Everything that he recalled, remember he was uh, he was only a, a boy at the time, and he it was his job often to bring in the donuts and the coffee and he would sit in, on the side and he'd hear all things that are going on you know and uh, he uh, he was the source of a great deal of information and background and uh, identifying who the who the key people were who were a part of his father's group who were involved in the assassination.
0: could you talk about the money that Ron Tyler Adkins witnessed uh, Clyde Tolson bringing bags of money, didn't he, to his father to distribute?
1: Yeah, he brought—Ron um, uh, said that uh, uh, money in in brown paper bags was brought in uh, by Tolson, and the father would distribute it for the purpose of getting uh, ongoing information about King's movements and um, activities. There were two sources of money that were paid out, in, apparently, in those days. And, and one was, was from the local uh, Memphis FBI office. And these were people who were regularly on payroll, who were, who were very active and prominent in Memphis politics and Memphis public life. And then there were special funds that he described that were brought in. And I think it's important, Bonnie, to understand that everything related to th- these events and this type of activity of Clyde Tolson, and by the way, we have in the book a photograph of Tolson with Atkins' family. So there's, you know, we have photographic proof that this, this took place. But in terms of the, the, the narrative and the deposition, and it is under oath, believe you know, it's there, it's, it's also filmed under oath, um, that these these amount to allegations, and it's it's important to be sure that people understand that they're allegations. I, I um, it's my opinion that this young man, now not so young, of course, had no reason to lie about these uh, these events and things that he saw, and and I think he was trying to un. Unburden himself with with a, a lot of the story that that he told. and uh, but it has to be all taken in that context of allegations.
0: Well, in that context of allegations, there were actual individuals' names on some of these bags of money. What were some of the names?
1: yeah, he uh, he indicated that he saw names of, um, of prominent uh, people. Uh, who uh, were providing services and information on Dr. King and the SCLC movement and their plans and strategy with respect to the sanitation workers' strike? Remember, Dr. King came into Memphis uh, to support the sanitation workers, and after that, he was going to lead the Poor People's March in Washington. Um, and he saw he he saw these these bags with names on them. One of them was of. Reverend Billy Kyle's, who was a prominent um, black preacher in Memphis, and uh, was a, uh, according to him, was um, being paid regularly for information and about uh, again the, the movement and the strategy and related to the sanitation workers' strike. Reverend Kyle's, it was at Reverend Kyle's home that the um, Barbecue that evening was to uh, take place, and uh, that uh, and and it was Reverend Kyle's job to get um, Martin King out of the motel room at um, six o'clock that evening. Uh, and in fact, the police logs of the surveillance officer, who also testified at the 1999 trial, uh, but he he confirmed his own notes, which indicated that. Kyle's went to the door uh, of the motel room, room three oh six. Knocked on the door. The door opened um, just briefly, remained open for a short while, and then was closed. And Kyle's walked down the balcony, north on the balcony, and just stood there and waited. Um, Kyle's had maintained all of his professional post-assassination life that he. Um, was in the room with Dr. King for the last uh, half hour of his life, talk, and they carried on. And uh, so he has always said that he was there for that last half hour inside the room. When I first raised this with Abernathy, who, of course, was in the room, he said, Billy Kyle's a liar. He was never in the room. And uh, that was the first indication I had that um, uh, until we got the uh, documentation that Kyle's Was not in fact in the room, and he had lied all of those years. So that's the story of uh, Reverend William Sammy Kyle's, and uh, pretty clear from what Ron Adkins said that uh, he was um, being paid regularly for information. Yeah. So that's that's one example of someone who uh, whose name was on. allegedly on the paper bag that uh, Ron Tyler Adkins saw.
0: What do you make of Adkins's son's revelations or claims that Reverend Jesse Jackson's name was on one of these bags of money?
1: Well, I want to, uh, I want to, I want to say again that this is, uh, this is an allegation. Um, it is an allegation made under oath, but it nevertheless is, uh, is an allegation by an individual, Um, who had a a fair amount to say about uh, uh, Reverend Jackson and um, um, that to me is um, obviously disturbing and worrying. I can't uh, assert anything as being factual about what he has said because I didn't see it. And I am just put forward what this... um, man has told me under under oath that he did see i don't perceive that he would have any reason um to uh engage in fabrication but i think i can only state exactly what what he what he said without without labeling it as as factual or truthful but just as uh, an allegation that has been made and he did he did say yes he had seen jesse jackson's name on uh, paper bags for uh, containing money. Yes, he did say that.
0: I'm speaking with attorney and author, Dr. William Pepper. Today's show, The Plot to Kill King, an interview with Dr. William Pepper 39 years into the investigation. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Who were the invaders, and have you ever spoken with any of them?
1: I've interviewed all of them. Early on, I, I met with the invaders. I, maybe one of the few people to actually sit down with each one of them. They were, they were a, a Black Panther group, who um, uh, were committed to local community services in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, they were, they were uh, uh, strident and they were determined and uh, independent. And, uh, and Dr. King. Uh, was bringing them into his operation with the precondition of uh, of nonviolence he was bringing them in to assist with respect to the demonstration for the uh, sanitation workers and They had two rooms at the uh, at the motel they were armed and they had two rooms and they were um, they were there to work with Martin King and SCLC on the sanitation workers strike, and then suddenly, the afternoon of the uh, of the assassination, late in the afternoon, they were told to leave. They were told to leave the hotel. That SCLC was not going to pay uh, pay for their rooms anymore, and they were flabbergasted because they had been working very hard with Dr. King and uh, they didn't understand why that that was to be the case. But uh, nothing surprised them, really, I suppose, and they packed up and left. And I guess they left the motel within 15 minutes of the killing, something like that, right around there. They just moved out of their two rooms.
0: Could you describe how the uh, removal of the invaders and the moving of uh, Dr. King's hotel room was orchestrated?
1: Well, again, I wasn't privy to <laughs> to those events, obviously at that point in time. But I can tell you what um, what what witnesses have said. Um, the invaders um, told me that uh, all of a sudden, and this was Martin King was I was killed at about uh, four past six uh, when he was standing on the. He wasn't killed, but he was shot to 4 past 6 when he was standing on the balcony. And uh, the invaders indicated that um, all of a sudden around 20 past 5, about you know, 50, 5 fifty-five zero minutes before um, uh, the assassination, uh, around there, 5.20, 5.25, somewhere in there, maybe even 5.30, uh, a, a hotel staff person knocked on the door, and told them that uh, they they were now going to have to leave, uh, like five thirty in the evening. And they thought it was strange. They said, "SCLC was no longer going to pay your bill, and you had to leave." They thought this was extraordinary. And uh, when they they confronted that hotel staff person with why they were all of a sudden being thrown out of the hotel, uh, they said, "Well, SCLC is not going to pay your bill, and we've been told to tell you to leave." And they said, "Well." Uh, when they asked as to who gave those instructions, uh, the report was that um, uh, it was Reverend Jackson. And I'm going to stress again that this is an allegation that was made by um, a member of the, uh, of the invaders um, who was at the door when was, he was told they had to leave. Okay, so that, that happened, and they just packed up and they left. Now, that has, that has to do with why they left the room, uh, and they had two rooms up on the same level as Dr. King. Okay. Um, with respect to the room change, this always was a mystery, and no one understood, uh, and I couldn't. It took me a long time to get information as to why. Uh, and all of a sudden, there was this room change. because Dr. King was supposed to have been in room 202, which is a lower ground floor secluded, um, secure room uh, at the motel, and instead he was moved to room 306, which was the balcony room, very highly exposed room. And Ron Tyler Adkins uh, alleged that um, he was moved because um, uh, his mother had been given instructions uh, from Frank Holloman, Director of Police and Fire, through the, his elder brother, Russell, uh, to organize the change in the room. And uh, he was with her when she gave O.C. Evers, who was a black uh, worker who worked for the Adkins family, she called O.C. Evers on the phone, in fact sent him out to get O.C.'s um best phone number from a book they had in another another small house that her husband, who had died was dead, remember by then. her husband had used so they he got the book he brought it back, and he was basically he this is what he states he was at her elbow when uh she called o c evers and she told o c that she had uh, something for him to do, and it was very important that uh, she speak with him, could he speak. And O.C. Uh, Evers said that he would call her back, and uh, they they waited, and then O.C. called called back, and she spoke to him on the phone. And again, um, Ron Tyler Adkins is standing right there, and he's telling me under oath and uh, what he heard his mother say and what the conversation was, and um, he maintained that he heard her tell O.C. Evers that uh, he, O.C., should go and uh, um, approach Reverend Jackson and ask him to go to the owner of the motel, uh, the Bailey's owned the motel, Walter and Lurley Bailey, and get them to change King's Room to 306. And uh, he alleges that this is this the conversation that he heard that took place and uh, she then um uh hung up the phone and uh so far as he knows uh OC uh, did what he was told but he doesn't know that OC did what he was told because he wasn't present um and, and where any instructions were given to Bailey and so he he's just uh, he was just speculating that this is what happened and this is what he alleged Took place in the deposition that we have now. One interesting, I mean, an interesting point is, of course, um, Dr. King was moved from Room 202 to Room 306. Uh, Walter Bailey at various times has said he was approached by someone in King's organization, and he opposed. He Bailey opposed, and his wife opposed the, the room change, but they insisted that. Dr. King wanted to have a, a more airy view and a, and a better, a better scene, and therefore, um, uh, or someone was insisting on the room change. And I'm going to stress that Walter Bailey never named uh, Reverend Jackson because he didn't. So what we know is a fact is that the room was changed. That we know. Um, what we also know as a fact is that after the assassination. Um uh, Lurley Bailey, Mrs. Bailey, uh, screamed out at one point right after the shooting, oh my God, what have I done? And then she ran to her room and locked the door, and she had a stroke. They had to break down the door. They took her to the same hospital as they took Dr. King, St. Joseph's, and um, she died five days later. Now, those are facts, as contrasted with allegations.
0: What about a surgical nurse's son, Jonathan Shelby? What did he say his mother told him about what happened at St. Joseph's Hospital on the day of the shooting? And you've just mentioned that uh, uh, Dr. King was taken to this hospital after having uh, been shot.
1: Yes, um... She was a surgical nurse. Um, uh, Dr. King was taken to the emergency room. They were working on him in the emergency room, and she was in and out of that room along with uh, other medical professionals. Um, at one point, she said, the chief of surgery, Dr. Breen, B-R-E-N, Breen Bland, came into the emergency room with two men in suits. Um, And um, uh, Dr. Bland said, stop working on that nigger and uh, get out of here. Stop working on that nigger, let him die, and get out of here. And he he cleared the room of uh, of all these people. As they were going out, uh, she heard them gathering up spit in their mouths, sort of like a (laughs) type of thing. And that caused her to turn around and just look over her shoulder as she was leaving and she saw the three of them spit on the body of Dr. King. The catheter had already been removed from his throat, and she saw Dr. Bland take a pillow and put it over his face and head and suffocate him. He was still breathing at the, at the time, so this was effectively the, uh, the final assassination. Now, um, what happened uh, was she had to stay in the hospital overnight. She went home the next morning, and she was distraught, terribly depressed and distraught. She called all her family around her, including uh, Jonathan, who was a boy at the time. and She said uh, I, to the family in their living room, I don't know why they had to kill him. Why did they have to kill him? she said and um, uh, she was very very depressed and distraught at this whole thing well Chaunton himself his mother has passed away but he kept this uh, with him all his life and uh, he has now um, uh, told us this story under oath and uh, we, we took it took the testimony and we filmed it The interesting thing about Dr. Breen Bland, who was chief of surgery, apparently, at the hospital, was that he was also the Adkins family doctor. And that Ron Tyler Adkins, the son we've been talking about, was present in um, a meeting where Dr. Bland was meeting with his father and said very clearly, if he's not killed... By the, uh, by the bullet, make sure, at least make sure he comes to my hospital, and I'll make sure he doesn't get out alive. So we have a second source for this event. Again, Ron Tyler Atkins hearing, and again, these are allegations. Remember that. This, this doctor talking, who was fa- their family doctor, talking to his father and telling him this. So we have that, and then we have Jonathan Shelby, whose mother, Lula Mae Shelby, was the surgical nurse, and what he had to say. So um, it does appear that Martin King was killed, finally, in St. Joseph's Hospital. Now, the question is, would he have survived his wounds? Probably not. I've had Cyril Weck, the forensic pathologist, and Michael Baden, another one, um, you know, examine the um, uh, examine the medical reports, and, and I think they generally believe that he probably would have died anyway. But they didn't know that. That they both said that, and Cyril in particular said, "There's no way they could have known that he was still breathing. He was still being treated, and it is possible that he would have survived." But Cyril thought it was unlikely, and I put the, this exchange of correspondence in the. Uh, in the book as well, so the readers can, uh, can have uh, access to it.
0: And finally, you write about how Dr. King had evolved beyond the civil rights movement to embrace anti-war and economic justice for all, and that Dr. King was leading a revolution in values to shift American society from materialism to humanism. Why, in your view, was Dr. King considered such a grave threat to ruling powers.
1: Well, there were there were two two reasons why he ultimately had to be killed. They tried, of course, to intimidate him in various ways. And what you learn about political assassinations is that they only become necessary if there's no other way to get rid of um, someone who is a threat to the ruling order. And Martin King uh, had reached that position. He was going to lead a group of half a million people, minimal. To into Washington, D.C., not to march, but to camp there to go and visit with their uh, congressmen and senators and try to get them to change the budget and put money back into um, social programs that had been taken out because of the war. Uh, the military believed, I think correctly, that they were not going to be successful. That, the, that was not going to happen. The money was not going to be diverted back into social programs. And they were going to get frustrated. And they were afraid they would have a revolution on their hands in the streets of Washington. And they didn't have the troops to put it down. Westmoreland wanted another 200,000 for uh, Vietnam. They didn't have those. So they were afraid to, uh, they, were, they were not going to be able to contain the anger of a spontaneous revolution. Remember, it virtually happened in, um, in, in Paris. Although Charles de Gaulle had André Malraux, who was able to uh, finesse him through it, um, Lyndon Johnson didn't have any one of Malraux's capabilities around him. And a Hundred Cities member had burned that year. In that previous year, over a hundred cities burned. Uh, The country was uh, on fire. So that was the primary reason, I believe, they killed him. The secondary reason was, of course, uh, the bottom lines of American military and energy corporations, uh, and his opposition to the war in Vietnam, which was growing. And that was what was making him an international human rights leader, not a civil rights leader anymore, but an international human rights leader. And he, uh, was threatening the bottom lines of those corporations. So, uh, assassination became, uh, again, the last resort. And, uh, they had to. Uh, they had to get rid of him.
0: Who wrote the poetry that begins every chapter in your book?
1: I did. I mean, that's poetry is my first love. I'm primarily a
0: poet. I didn't know that. I think the poetry is wonderful. I was very impressed with it.
1: Oh, thank you, thank you for that. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a uh, it's a love of mine, and I insist on bringing
0: it out sometimes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> sometimes.
0: Dr. William Pepper, thank you very much.
1: You're welcome, Bonnie, and thanks for all that you do. I know you've, you sometimes have a difficult road to hoe with Pacifica. I know um, uh, that you're not always allowed to broadcast, things that you want to broadcast, and uh, that you have been uh, unfairly reined in, and it makes us aware that the progressive media uh, it can only go so far itself, and uh, it's unfortunate, but uh, thanks to people like you, at least you're you're, 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 pushing, you're, you're pushing those limits, and uh, hopefully you'll continue to do so. And thank you very, very much for interviewing me and looking at the plot to kill. that's it. The plot to kill is the, the third and last book. it 's the end of this um, saga of mine. Uh, with respect to Dr. King, and uh, so that's over. Unfortunately, I still have. Um, I got talked into this taking on the Surhone case, uh, the Robert Kennedy case, back in 2007, and I'm still struggling with that one. You know, I worked for Bob Kennedy, and I was only a kid when he ran for the Senate in '64 in New York, and I was his citizens' chairman in Westchester County, and so I, I have some some personal. Uh, feelings about that case as well. However, we just do what we can do, huh? And you're doing what you do, and please keep it up, and uh, thanks a lot.
0: Well, thank you so much for those remarks, Dr. Pepper. You're
1: welcome.
0: Today's show has been The Plot to Kill King, an interview with Dr. William Pepper, 39 years into the investigation. William Pepper is an attorney, an author, and a poet. He is the author of three books on the assassination of Martin Luther King, Orders to Kill, An Act of State, and his third and latest book, The Plot to Kill King, The Truth Behind the Assassination of Martin Luther King Jr published by Skyhorse Publishing in June of 2016. William Pepper's primary work is international commercial law. He has represented governments in the Middle East, Africa, South America, and Asia. He is heavily involved in human rights law for a time convening the International Human Rights Seminar at Oxford University. Visit his website at williampepper.com that's williampepper.com. Email him at wfpintlawoxford at aol.com. That's wfpintlawoxford at aol.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yarrow Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, Or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the For with a spirit knife, trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying, look what this just yourself, for peace, give thanks, live life, and release, you dig me?